So an interesting thing happened to me uh, this morning. While I was up and drinking coffee and enjoying the quietness of this morning, and I, st- I was reading over my notes, and I thought about I thought about childhood and growing up, and I thought about I was looking at the the title of this message. I was looking at the scriptures, and I was realizing you know what we're trying to see about what God has said here and. And here's the thing that kept coming to my mind. I kept thinking about a parent's warning to a child trying to paint a mental picture of judgment that was coming enough to where the child would be warned sufficiently against misbehaving, disobedience, all that sort of thing. And here's what I was thinking in particular. Things that my father would say to me to warn me that I better straighten up or I, my, I, I would not be sitting down for quite a while. And he would say things like, boy, and, and anything, any sentence that started that way, I just, I knew what was about to happen. I brought you in this world, I'll take you out. Don't make me, don't make me spank you. Don't make me get my belt out. You know, this is going to hurt me worse than it hurts you. And I'd always tell him, well, then don't do it. Have mercy. I mean, save yourself some pain. If it's going to hurt you so bad, don't do it. I know what it's going to feel like to me. But I think the more vivid of a mental picture that could be created the more I would be likely to heed the warning. If I could see in my mind, boy, that's going to be really bad. I better rethink my actions before actually going through with it and and getting the punishment. So I thought those scenarios just going through my mind this morning, and then I went back and I read the Scripture again, and I looked at the, the notes I had made, And it just seemed more and more appropriate to think about this. It's a chunk of Scripture today, and I don't think I'm going to read every verse today, but more so just give you a picture of each section so that we can save some time and and, and still get the true meaning of what God has said to His people in the past and what we can learn from that message. One commentator that I read this week said it this way about... Amos, about this section of Scripture. Here's what he said. He said, Having warned in the opening section that judgment was coming, and having explained the reasons for it as the prophecy goes on, Amos now displays the symbols of the judgment and makes his last appeal for the spiritually alive to flee from it. The inevitability of judgment comes through strongly here, for it's based on the unchanging character of God. See, we think it'd be nice if we could change God, if we could get Him to be a little less holy, a little less upright, a little more indulgent. But we can't change Him. God is who He is. And consequently, we have to come to terms with Him 
He doesn't come to terms with us. These visions teach us to do that while there's still time. Now this passage today goes from chapter 7 to chapter 9. And it's a, a pretty lengthy description of some judgment, that visions that was given to Amos. And even though it's lengthy, it's very clear. If, and here's the premise of the message, the premise that the text gives us today. If we as a people are unwilling to hear the Word of God, if we're unwilling to listen to the Word of God, there's a difference between hearing and listening. If we're unwilling to do those things, then we have absolutely no recourse for the judgment that God is going to send. The, the punishment's going to fit the crime, so to speak. When I was young and I was misbehaving, if I did not change my behavior and did not rethink where I was going, then I didn't have a leg to stand on when my daddy's belt came off. That's just the way it is. If you're going to do the crime, you've got to do the time, so to speak. If you're going to continue in rebellion and disobedience to God, then we have no words to say, no case to make when the judgment does finally come. We've been warned plenty of times. We've been warned sufficiently, vividly, clearly in God's Word. So we don't have a leg to stand on. Now there's several, there's five visions like I said, and I, I want to give you just a, a peek. I'm going to read the first nine verses of chapter 7 in the book of Amos. And if you'll recall when we began this series, we actually included verses 10 to 17 in the very first message from the very first Sunday. But we're going to read the first nine verses here as they give us three of the visions of judgment. And then we're going to talk about those and then look at the remainder of the passage. So if you'll turn your attention to God's Word, chapter 7 of Amos, beginning in verse 1. And this is what the Bible says. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing, and it came about when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land. I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand, for he's small? So the Lord changed his mind about this, and it shall not be, said the Lord. He relented from the judgment. Verse 4, Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, the Lord God was calling to contend with them by fire. And it consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland. Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand for he's small? The Lord changed his mind or relented about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. Verse 7, Thus he showed me, behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. And we're going to stop right there for a moment before we continue on through the scriptures and through 
what God has said. Let's pray together before we go forward. Father, this passage of Scripture you've given us today is, is filled with warnings, pictures of judgment that awaits those who continue to rebel and disobey. And so, God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears, that you would focus our attention on what you have to tell us today. God, please don't let me get in the way. Don't let me mess this up. I don't want to say anything that's not in accordance with your word. So I pray you will speak, that your spirit would move and give us understanding, and that you would clearly proclaim this truth in spite of me, that you would help us understand exactly what you call us to do, what you're asking from us, and what we must do to respond to this word today. Help us, Lord. We, we are in desperate need of you, whether we realize it or not. So speak clearly today, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Let's review these nine verses real quickly. There's three of the five visions of judgment that happen in this first little part of chapter 7. The first one is a locust swarm. Now what's interesting about this is the whole prophecy of Joel, which was right before Amos in the Old Testament, is all about locusts. It's all about that judgment. It's reminiscent of Joel's prophecy, this invasion of locusts. And the, the point that Amos makes here is he mentions this one little phrase there in, in chapter, one, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. He says, The spring crop was after the king's mowing. Now what does that mean exactly? Here's what happened. They had different parts of the harvest that they gave to different people. So the king's harvest was actually a form of taxation, and it came early on in uh, the growing season. So the second harvest was when the people actually gathered their food for the winter. So understand what's about to happen. When it says that the, the locust swarm was coming when the spring crop began to sprout but it was after the king's mowing that means the people had already gathered some stuff to give to pay their tax so everything that was left was going to be for them and that's what God was going to destroy so he let them pay their taxes and then the part that they would get to keep for themselves that was what was in danger so it's much more painful for them if they don't Obey what God says to do. He says the second harvest was when food was gathered for the winter. It came at the end of the season. So destruction of the second harvest would annihilate the kingdom completely. So you can see that's a big deal for these people. So when Amos then says, Lord God, please pardon us. We can't, Jacob, uh, the people, he's talking about Jacob, the people of Israel. How can Jacob stand? He's small. In other words, he can't stand. If you do this, if you send this judgment the people are going to be wiped out. So the Lord relented. He gave a warning, painted a picture, said this is what's about to happen. Get straight. Get right. The second vision is fire, verses 4, 5, and 6. This is a symbolic judgment. Fire would dry up the water. It would devour the land. And so literal fire may not be that devastating as far as sucking up all the water, 
but the judgment of fire would leave nothing behind. It would completely devastate the land. And just a little note. When God paints these pictures, you know, when we, when we get the, uh, the, the opportunity to use our imagination when God paints a picture for us about what judgment might look like, whatever we experience in life as a result of God's judgment is always far less than what we actually deserve. Have you ever thought about that? Has that ever even dawned on you? Because it's not a pleasant thought. Because if we think about the truth, reality, I mean, we like to deal in reality. There's no need to sit here and, and just think happy thoughts all the time if, if things are not happy. Whatever God does as a judgment for sin on this earth, what do we actually deserve as a judgment for sin? Death and hell. That's, what, that's the payment for sin. What does Romans 6 and 23 say? The wages of sin is death. Right? That's what we deserve. So understand, whatever judgment God sends, it's still less than we deserve. Even in judgment, God is still merciful. Even consequences for sinful actions on this earth are still not as bad as it could be. It could always be far worse because that's what we deserve. God's people need to pay attention to warnings. Have you ever had a warning? You know what I'm thinking of right now? I'm thinking of a state trooper <laughs> pulling in behind me with the blue lights. And I'm praying, Lord, I hope he's having a good day. Please let him be gracious. I, you know, I've got my hands on the steering wheel, got my window down, got the car turned off, trying to be, you know, no threat. I don't want even to be perceived the least little bit as non-compliant. I don't want to end up on an episode of cops getting thrown in the back of a truck, you know. I, I just want, I want everything to go well. So you, you, can you identify with the sense of relief when the officer takes your license and registration and proof of insurance? I'll be back in a minute. And then what are you doing besides praying? You're looking in the rearview mirror. wonder how long he's going to be back there. Because, you know, if he writes a warning, it doesn't take near as long as if he writes a ticket. So if he's back there a long time, I'm sure I'm getting a ticket. So maybe he'll just come back quickly. And he comes back up, Mr. McCormick, here's your information back. I clocked you at whatever, whatever speed. I'm just going to give you a warning today. Praise Jesus. I want to get out and dance around the car. Cause, but that never happens because I don't, I don't typically, well, I don't speed anymore, but I don't typically get warnings. I don't get warnings. But what a relief. Because, you know, why, why is it a relief? Well, I deserved so much more. I got caught. I was flying low on the interstate. And, and I got caught. So the consequence should have been way worse. But somebody was merciful and kind. Maybe they were having a good day. Maybe it was the end of their shift. They were ready to go home. They didn't want to take time to do the paperwork. Who cares? I, I was given mercy. So what am I likely to do? 
You ever seen somebody pull away from a traffic stop? How, how do you leave the side of the road when you just got pulled over? Seatbelt on, two hands on the wheel, turn signal, and it takes you about half an hour to reach 60. Nice, slow acceleration. I'm going to be Mr. Safety Conscious because I'm, I, the warning is, is fresh in my mind. But you know what happens over time? If you don't get a run in with the, with the law over time, what happens? Gradually, you go farther back and you go back to what you were doing before until the next time you get caught. Do you realize how, how closely that resembles spiritual things? See, when God gets you and you know you're got and you get the penalty, the consequence for your actions, it hurts and it reminds you, I need to do a little differently here. But the, the more time that elapses where you straighten up for a while and then maybe you don't get in any trouble for a while and then you, you get more comfortable, a little, maybe a little complacent, and then all of a sudden you're back to doing whatever you were doing before. That's not the way God designed it to work. We really need to pay attention to God's warnings. Now this third vision, I'm going to just tell you, this is, to me, this third vision is one of the most distinct warnings uh, as far as visually what you can imagine. Verses 7, 8, and 9 here in, in Amos 7, the plumb line. You know what a plumb line is? H how do you want something to be square and, and right? Take a piece of string, put your weight on the bottom, and hang it. What's it going to do? Gravity is going to point. It's, it's going to... When it stops moving, stops swaying, it's going to hang straight down, perfect vertical, every time. So when you put something up next to it that's not perfectly vertical, you can tell how far out you are, right? Because the plumb lines, you know that's, that's your standard. That's, that's the standard against which you're measuring whatever you're doing. So if you want something, if you want a wall or whatever else to be square, hang the plumb line, then whatever's next to it, you match the standard. You're trying to match the standard. You see, the spiritually, do you see what's happening here? Where, what's our standard? Jesus. You want to know how far out of square we are in life? Look at Jesus. How do you compare up to Jesus? So that's what, that's what God was saying. He, uh, he, he's using it. He's dropping a plumb line to be the standard. He's about to check Israel to see if the nation is as upright as they think they are. So here's what's going to get rejected. Corrupt religion. Corrupt government. Corrupt people. The Bible says the high places of Isaac, the sanctuaries of Israel, all is going to be destroyed. Grace was being abused. Law was being neglected. The lifestyle of the people did not follow their profession of faith. You can say whatever you want. I believe this. I believe that. Whatever. Guess what? 
If you don't do it, you don't believe it. Did you hear me? I can stand up here and preach. You can stand up and say, Amen, and I believe that. You're exactly right. And guess what? If we walk out of here and we don't live it out, you may as well not say you believe it. How much does it affect your life? The, here, here's a good one. Here's a great test. This is, this is ground level, basic. Did you know that a Christian does not have the luxury of being unkind? You know why? This is, this is just ground level stuff. A Christian cannot be unkind ever. Why? Because the next time you want to try to tell somebody about Jesus and they, all they remember is the time you said this or did that or acted this way, guess what? They don't care what you have to say about anybody. You want to tell somebody about Jesus? I don't want to listen to that. Why not? Well, because clearly it doesn't make any difference to you because I remember what you said to me last week. You, you tracking with me? When you say something or do something or act a certain way or treat somebody a certain way and it doesn't match up with what a Christian is supposed to be, you have just lost your right to share the gospel with them because you have no credibility anymore. Why do you think many people in our culture, in our community, in the world, why do, why do you think people are rejecting religion as a whole but the gospel in, in, in specific? It's because the people, we, us, me, everyone who's trying to share the truth of Jesus... We're not backing it up with a life that looks like Jesus. And when we don't do that, we're killing our own case. We're trying to share a life-saving, life-giving truth, but apparently we haven't even fully incorporated it into our own lives because we're not demonstrating what we're trying to preach. Do you all hear me, what I'm saying? This is, this is the main problem with Christianity and religion in, in, in everywhere I've ever been. It's, a, it's the main problem with me. My main problem is I can't live up to the standard. And so when I try to share the gospel, I'm defeating my own purpose because I haven't fully lived out the truth that I proclaim. Do you, do you understand how important these warnings are? What's my goal? It's my goal every day is to live like Jesus, is to act like Jesus, to speak like Jesus, to treat people like Jesus treats people. That's my goal. But that's here, and most of the time I end up here. I'm not, I'm not able to do it. I'm certainly not able to do that on my own strength. If I, if I forsake the Bible and the Holy Spirit of God and, and forsake my relationship with Christ, I don't even have a fighting chance. It's, it's necessary that we, first of all, open this book, read it constantly, pray for understanding that the Holy Spirit, the Bible says the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth, will give us understanding. We've got to read it, study it, meditate on it, learn it, know it, then do it. And if we don't have God strengthening us to do that, we don't have a chance. 
That's how important this is. That's why this particular illustration, the plumb line, is so important. Because at the end of this particular thing, he said, verse 9, he says, I'm going to rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Well, you know what? You want to know something about Jeroboam? Jeroboam was the one who uh, came against Amos in the very beginning. And Jeroboam was the king who did evil. If you look back in the uh, earlier on in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 24, when it's going through the catalog of the kings, well, the one who succeeded him, you know what it says about him? It says, this, this next king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam. This is the, the king that's in power right now, which he made Israel to sin. So Jeroboam's first problem was he set up a bunch of golden calves. Everywhere there was a church, everywhere there was a temple, he set up an idol at all the shrines of these two cities. So this is why when they, they departed from God, that's why God's bringing judgment on them. Let me just, let me, this is a good story. Let me read this story to you. I've been looking forward to reading this all week. All right, so this is not, this is not uh, I, didn't, I didn't make this up because I, I don't want to reinvent the wheel, but this is, this is really good. So here's what's going on right here. This is, if you don't hear anything else I say, please listen to this story because this is going to enlighten us about this Scripture and the meaning of the Scripture. The difficulty here is we don't think as God thinks, so we constantly measure ourselves by other human standards rather than by God's standard of perfection. It's like my trip to Walmart, okay? I'm feeling bad about myself. I'll go to Walmart. I'm going to find somebody who's doing worse than me, and I'm going to improve myself, myself uh, confidence. That's not a good idea, by the way. All right, so here's the story. Imagine a class of children. We've got just finished the school year. Imagine there's a, a class full of children. They're about to receive an art lesson from the teacher, and the first step in their lesson is to draw a straight line on the left side of a sheet of paper. Okay, that's your assignment. Draw a straight line on the left side of the sheet of paper. But before the teacher can finish her instructions and tell them everything she wants them to do, before she finishes, another teacher comes and knocks on the door and needs to talk to her for a second. So she has to walk out in the hall for just a minute. Well, what do the kids do? Well, they go ahead and start. They figure they got enough. Draw, draw a straight line on the left side of the paper. So she's gone about 10 minutes, and while she's gone, the children continue what she told them to do, so they're all drawing lines. Now, that wouldn't take very long, right? She's gone about 10 minutes. So what do they do after they draw their lines? They're wondering what they should do next. So here's what they do. They decide to compare their lines to see who drew the straightest line. But who are they comparing to? Each other. Let's see who drew the straightest line. So Johnny says to Philip, who's sitting by him, well, my line's straighter than yours. And Philip says, no, it isn't. So then they get a group of girls to come over and settle the argument, and they eventually agree that Philip's line is straighter. But then Mary says, well, my line's straighter than both of y'all. And Philip says, well, really? So they all took Mary's paper, and sure enough, her line's the straightest of all of them. So this gets the children going pretty soon. They've made comparisons all around the whole class, and they can even tell you all the lines in order from best to worst, the whole class. Robert has the worst line. He was never good at art anyway. The girls have the best lines. Mary's is the best of all of them. So after they've done all this comparing, guess what happens? The teacher comes back in the room. And when the teacher comes back in the room, 
she says that she didn't want the children to freely draw a line. They, she was going to hand them all rulers and let them use a ruler to draw their line. She then goes around to every child's desk and draws a line with a ruler next to the one that they drew. Now, every single hand-drawn line, even Mary's, looks crooked because it's next to a standard. This is the effect of evaluating our lives by the plumb line that God drops from heaven. Before God steps in, the lines we've been drawing by the making of many small little ethical decisions, they seem fairly straight. When we compare them with each other, with other people, they seem even better. Because we naturally tend to compare ourselves with those who do worse than we do. We rate ourselves highly, but then God steps in. And we all look crooked. That's the trouble with appealing to God's justice. Many people think all they want from God is justice. They say, God, it's not right for you to judge us with locusts and fire. And some of us are better than others. Well, I'm not as bad as that one. We demand you take those differences into account. So God says, okay, we'll see who really measures up to being good. And he sends down his plumb line, Jesus Christ. He says, this is what's good. This is the standard. Who measures up to this? No one does, of course. We're condemned. So we need to learn this great lesson. If we appeal to justice, no one will be saved. Everyone will be condemned by God's justice. See, what we want is not justice. We want grace and mercy. The same Christ by whom our corruption is revealed is the same Christ who died on Calvary that our sin would be covered and we'd be given a new life. I don't want what I deserve. I want God's grace. And the only place to get that is through Jesus Christ. So we fall through this scripture and we look at all these visions of judgment. The, all of chapter 8 is another vision. I won't spend too much time here just so we can get the point fully. It's a, it's a fruit basket. It's talking about harvesting fruit. It's talking about that Israel is ripe for judgment. And so the main point of chapter 8 You'll find it in verse 5, because this is what the people are saying. When's the new moon going to be over so we can sell our grain? When's the Sabbath going to be over so we can open up the wheat market? We're going to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger, and we're going to cheat people with dishonest scales. So that's the kind of people that were supposed to be God's people. But you know what? Here's what they were saying. Are you listening? Listen. Listen to what I'm about to say. Hey, hey, when's church going to be over? i got things to do. Y'all all right? Everybody okay? That's what they're saying. When's this? We can't do anything on the Sabbath. When's this going to be over with? We got, we got work to do. We got things to get to. Much more important than worship. We got higher priorities. Can you see how far that is away from what God's design is for his people? 
can't wait to get through. Let me just get, I, I, this, is, this is an obligation. This is just, I got to do this. Got to go to church. Got to sing songs and put money in a plate. And listen to that preacher. When's this going to be through so I can do something important? God help us. You, we wonder why judgment's coming. Nobody, everybody's got time for everything in the world, but nobody's got time for God. Everything we have, everything we do, is a gift from Almighty God. And yet, we don't have, we don't have a little bit of time, once or twice a week even, to spend some time with God. You know what Amos says here in this same chapter? In chapter 8? You want to talk about scary? Look at verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. Did you know when the Old Testament ended... When you turn a few pages over and you get to Malachi, and Malachi's over, you know what happens after that? 400 years of silence. Can you imagine the first generation about to die off? Hey, y'all heard anything from God lately? No. Sure hadn't. Uh, you reckon he's going to send somebody else here pretty soon? I don't know. I hope so. 400 years of nothing. I mean, and God had been steady sending people. And then all of a sudden, nothing. And he, he told them right here, I'm going to send a famine. You're not going to hear from me. If you don't, you don't get straight. You're not going to hear from me anymore. 400 years of silence. J.I. Packer, who wrote uh, several, several great books, J.I. Packer, he said, let us then take our Bibles fresh and resolve by the grace of God henceforth to make full use of the Word of God. Let us meditate on it till our sight is clear and our souls are fed. Let us live in obedience to God's will as we find it revealed to us in Scripture. It all starts right here. We've got to get in the Word. We've got to stay in the Word of God if we're going to have a chance That's chapter 8. The first part of chapter 9, and this is the end of our passage for today. It's a picture of an altar. You know what an altar was in the Old Testament? It was the place for sacrifice. It was the place where forgiveness was found. It was the place where the priest would go and intercede for the people, make the sacrifice, and then absolve the sin. But this is... <laughs> This is ironic. The, the altar now in this prophecy is the most unsettling vision of all because the place of mercy has now become the place of judgment. It was a place where the sacrifices were made. Well, grace is now ended for those who uh, are unsaved, who are unwilling to follow God. The Israelites have rejected God's ways, so they're going to be judged just like all the other pagan nations. All the nations don't even have a relationship with God. Verse 4 says, I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. 
talking about God's people. God's people. In verse 9, he gives this illustration about shaking uh, grain in a sieve. It says, I will shake the house of Israel among the nations just as grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. You know what that means? That means nobody is getting away. Nobody can escape the judgment of God when it's coming. You can, you can run, you can hide, you can flee wherever you want, but guess what? You're not going to run away from God. It's just not going to happen. You can fool yourself all you want. You think you can get away from God. Think, well, he can't find me here. Yeah, okay, whatever. Let me know, let me know how that works for you. It's, it's, not, it's not happening. Now, now listen to this. Listen to this as, as we finish up this passage. and I'm, I'm about done. When you read, the, we're going to stop at verse 10. When you read chapter 9, verse 9, talking about shaking the house of Israel, and then verse 10, the last verse of this paragraph says, All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. But did you see what he said? My people. Folks, walking through that back door and coming and finding a seat in this building does not save us from judgment and it does not give us an excuse to do whatever in the world we feel like we, we want to do. Just, just attending church does not make us right with God. Y'all understand what I'm saying? We, can, we, can, we should come to church. We should be a part of the fellowship. We should be with God's people. But because we want to, not because we have to, or not because we think we have to. The sinners of my people will die by the sword. And, and this is how he describes them. Look at the last sentence. Those who say, the calamity will not overtake us, will not confront us. In other words, it's the ones who are, who are deluded. Oh, God's, it'll be all right. God's not going to do anything to us. We're, we're God's people. Jesus is my homeboy, right? Isn't that what the shirt says? What a bunch of junk. Jesus is not your homeboy. He's the savior of the free world. He's so much more than that. People trying to make a cute little saying and make some money off. Jesus is God Almighty. And we should understand who we're dealing with. The Lord of grace has become the judge of the ones who have spurned salvation. And he's going to be our judge or our savior. And we're going to meet him either as one of the redeemed or as one of the condemned. So what do we do? Run to Jesus while you still have a chance. We don't know how much time we have. We don't know what's happening tomorrow. We don't know anything. But I do know this. Jesus is the only hope we have. Let's pray.